Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsapornchai. Well, brother, it is good to see you for a second day in a row because we <laughs> attempted to do this yesterday. Yeah, and uh, things didn't uh, work out so well. This is part of the challenge of me being on the southern tip of California and you being all the way up in Alaska and some of the connectivity issues that can occur there. Well, you know, brother, I do have a solution. You could just move out here. <laughs> I mean, after it's not California. Yeah, after seeing those beautiful pictures you posted of bald eagles, I, you know, that might be that might be tempting. Just, just I've heard of uh, you know, whole congregations moving to a different state before. So uh, we're a free state here, man. You know, we um, I, I have said often, and I love the state of Arizona. And, um, and I've told other people, you know, if there was a way I could uproot my entire church and just move across the border, and Arizona is only about, from where I am, it's about 60 miles away, 60, 65 miles away. If I could uproot them to Arizona, I would. I get it. Well, we have a really great topic that we're going to cover today. We took a few weeks break uh, going through the attributes, God's attributes, and today we're going to kind of pick that up, although I think we'll go a little bit broader than um, than just the attribute itself, but we're going to talk about love. Now, uh, that is an incredible attribute, but it is also a word that I think in today's world gets misused abused wrongly used um it it's a word that in general society really doesn't mean anything anymore because it's completely subjective yeah it's a word that has turned into whatever people wanted to make it mean that allows uh, for their point of view or their opinions to be accepted as truth um so we we do see this word thrown around a lot and there's a lot of words in the bible that the biblical meaning is different from what the secular meaning has become. And this is the nature of mankind that we see words change meaning over time in order to accommodate what man wants it to mean rather than what it truly means. Yeah. And, you know, I think we we would both make the argument that we need to let God define these things um, as they are in Scripture and not let our current culture redefine them in a way that, you know, is antithetical to the biblical meaning. But let me just throw a phrase out there that we hear all the time. And we'll start from that. I believe in X, Y, Z, and you should, too, because God is love. Yeah, that is the ultimate comeback to any kind of disagreement, and especially if you share biblical truth that someone disagrees with, um, they will often say, God is love. And this is kind of similar to those bumper stickers that say coexist. We see those bumper stickers all the time where you've got uh, different symbols for different religions, and it says coexist. And certainly as Christians, we have no problems coexisting with others, uh, but when we look at those bumper stickers, we realize that there is actual message behind it. And it's the same thing when people say God is love. And it's interesting because this is where the source of the person who is saying it, the actual person who's saying it means the world. Uh, it can make a world of difference. So, if John MacArthur were to say God is love, we would wholeheartedly agree. But a lot of times when people say God is love, they don't mean it the same way that you or I or someone like a John MacArthur would mean it. And essentially, they mean it to mean whatever it is they want you to believe. And the word love itself, um, what does it mean in our society today? It's very 
feelings driven it's a very emotions driven and so we attribute that to god when in fact that's not what god means when we see that phrase god is love yeah and you know two groups that just instantly come to my mind um that make a difference when they say god is love would be the professing christian lgbt crew uh TQA++++, whatever it is nowadays, group, right? So, those who would say, no, 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 God is love, therefore, we have to accept homosexuality. Um, And then, yeah, so, I mean, that's just one example of, you know, when John MacArthur, as you say, says God is love, he would mean something totally different uh, than, than a person who says, well, we have to accept homosexuality because God is love. Um, two different gods, two different versions of love uh, in those two scenarios. Uh, I like how one theological writer puts God's love this way. He says, God's love is his determination to give of himself to himself and to others and is his affection for himself and his people. Yeah, that's... That, that's a good quote. That's a good and deep quote. And it helps us to see that our love, first and foremost, should be centered upon God. And we know that as the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it shows us that we can't take that definition and then make ourselves the object of love in the same way. Um, because what we want for our fellow brothers and sisters within the church, what we want for anyone that we share the gospel with is for their love to be centered upon God. And so God is the one person that we know, you know he can say rightly that that true love should be directed and centered upon him, but we can't say that about anyone else because there is only one God. There is only one who is good. There is only one who is worthy of that praise, worship, and love. Absolutely, brother. And I think it's important when we think about what love is to consider God is the source of love. And there are lots of implications to that, but one of them being love can never be detached from truth. Right. It, it, it can't be purely subjective and it can't be t- detached from truth. And so we'll hear often hear things and you'll see this in arguments on, you know, Twitter and social media, things like, well, we love our neighbors, and we, but we just love our neighbors by bringing them food or love your neighbor um, by wearing a mask or love your neighbor by taking a vaccine or whatever it is, and it's not always grounded. In fact, very often it's not grounded in truth. It's grounded in feel-good work sometimes. Sometimes it's grounded in just my subjective preferences and things like, well, if you, you know, Uh, If you want to demonstrate the love of God, then you need to accept the LGBT community or you need to accept the social justice narrative or you need to accept the BLM narratives because that's what love is. Well, love absent truth isn't love at all. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Um, And we know that when Jesus Christ came, he came to teach us the truth. I mean, what did he say when he was tempted by Satan? Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so we understand that love is connected to truth, whereas the world wants you to believe that love is connected to their feelings. But we know from the book of Judges, the book of Judges, how does it end, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And uh, so we don't want to be in that situation, but that's exactly the situation that we're in when everyone is free to define love however they want to define it. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, Augustine of Hippo kind of spoke to the fact that every human has a desire to experience a love that's transcendent. Um, and, and then I, I like, it, you know, R.C. Sproul has some really good teaching on this. He said that 
regrettably for us today, however, I don't think there's any word in the English language that's been more stripped of the depth of its meaning than the word love. Um, and then he just goes on to talk about some of the things that we've talked about already. But it's really true. Um, now, what we're not saying is that God doesn't have any emotions or affections, right? That, that's not what we're saying. But, but we would say that um, God's emotions, God's affections, God's a passion, God's passions are not, um, he's not driven by those things, right? His love is a love out of principle, unlike us, right? We're driven by emotions. We're driven. I mean, just look at the last couple of days. You see emotions driving entire societies. Um, I mean, our society is largely driven by emotion these days. God is not yeah. that way. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and, and that's the problem with the man with man's view of love, and especially today, is that it is very emotions-driven. It is very feelings-driven. We treat it as primary, as the most important thing about a man is whether he is happy or not. And when you make your happiness your chief purpose, then you will do whatever it takes in order to sustain or to make yourself continually happy. And so that that's a dangerous place to be in. And we even understand this in a secular sense, um, in, in the sense that we know that when we let our emotions take over, um, we lose uh, we lose the ability to be rational. We we do irrational things. How often do we see it that when someone is driven by their emotions, whether it's rage or whatever it may be, that they end up doing something that later on that uh, they regret? And in fact, even in our world, when we elect leaders, when we have leaders, whether it's of businesses or of nations, whatever have you, we want leaders who are not going to be driven by their emotions, but people who can make sound, reasonable decisions. It doesn't mean they have no emotions, but that they are not controlled by them. And so we understand that God is one who does have emotions, but he is not one to make decisions that he later regrets. Um, he is completely and perfectly driven by his wisdom and knowledge, and we know him to be omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing. And so we know that he is perfect in all of his decisions. We see daily, almost it seems, examples of the importance of understanding what real love is. You know, I think back, we, we just had a major trial, you know, police officers found guilty of a couple counts of murder, and I'm sure there'll be an appeal. All, all of those details aside, the point I would want to make is that um, people out of emotion, long before there was ever an opportunity to have a trial, deemed him guilty. Uh, before facts were heard, before evidence was heard, you know, regardless of how you feel about uh, the trial and how it turned out, th that's in those the, the fact that people let their emotions drive them to um, a conclusion before any of that was heard is just a good example of why we should not be led by our emotions and why we shouldn't assume that um, our emotions are loving, right? Oftentimes, our emotions are self-centered and self-serving, which would bring me to one of the litmus tests, I think, of true love. And, and that would be that true love is never a, simply a self-serving love. It should be a sacrificial, selfless act rather than um, something that's going to promote me or, you know, think of the, all the virtue signaling that's going on and that sort of thing. That's not love, right? That's just selfishness, vain glory. Um, we talked a little bit about that previously. 
So yeah, that's a good point, Nathaniel. And we can take a look at Philippians chapter two right now because I have it in front of me. You know, Paul is actually in prison. He is writing to the Philippians. Um, he has mentioned the fact that he rejoices multiple times leading up to chapter two. And he says here, therefore, if there is any con encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the spirit, any affection and compassion, verse two says, make my joy complete. So we can make Paul's joy complete. And how is it that we make it complete? It's by being united. He says, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. But the idea of maintaining the same love, we can't maintain the same love if love is purely subjective. If we all bring our own ideas of what love is, how can we maintain the same love? It must be objective. It must be the love of God. And he says, he goes on to say, he goes on to explain exactly how we can do this. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And I really like the way the King James renders the empty conceit. It's literally vain glory um, in yeah. Greek. Do nothing from selfishness or vainglory, this idea that you're taking on or you're giving yourself glory that's absolutely empty, that's futile, that's nothing, it's worthless. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And then what does Paul do? He ends up lifting up the perfect example for us to follow by saying, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, and this is talking about from eternity past. Jesus Christ has existed in the form of God. And this is re reflecting the fact that he had glory. He had glory that could be clearly seen by the angels, by the spiritual realm. Yet he did not regard equality with, uh, with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And this is the amazing part, because we had just talked about vain glory, this idea of empty glory, that we are told not to do anything from selfishness or empty glory, which is glory that we give to ourselves but has nothing, but rather follow the example of Christ who had real glory, and he actually mm -hmm. emptied himself of that glory by taking on the form of a man. It wasn't that he actually lost something, but it's that he put something on. And by putting something on, we no longer saw the glory in him. Now, the three disciples that went on to the Mount of Transfiguration, they absolutely saw it. But he has lifted up as an example to us, and we know, of course, that Christ is the ultimate example of self-sacrifice because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Mm -hmm. And so that is our example. The God-man who existed in the highest of highs, the highest of exalted positions, he emptied himself by taking on the lowest of lows to being condemned as the worst of criminals, um, even though he had, had never sinned, and even though he did everything perfectly, walked perfectly according to the law, and was the ultimate um, example to us of what loving, being loving really is. Wow. Yeah. Amen. I, Christ is absolutely our example. And so, and, and you know what, brother, that, I, I mean, looking at Christ, this brings up, I, I think really exposes a false idea of love uh, that we often see. And that's kind of this idea that if we love the world enough, that they'll like us, we'll get along with them, that they'll love us back. Um, it, we, we look at Christ and we would acknowledge that he was perfect in every way without sin, right? Scripture makes that clear. We understand he was fully God. He was fully man, um, perfect in every way. So, it, we, we, could, we could say and rightly say that Jesus was the most perfectly loving man on earth, and yet they hated him. him. That's right? right. They hated him. They cried out to crucify him. And somehow 
um, we've gotten to where, or at least many have, have picked up the thought that we can love the world in such a way that uh, we can be friends with them. Um, well, that just simply isn't true. No one, I, I certainly know that I can't even reach the level of um, lovingness and kindness and gentleness that Christ had. And being far from that, even if I could, his, his life uh, demonstrates that the, the world, in fact, those very reasons uh, were the reasons that they hated him, because you can't separate God's love from his holiness, from his righteousness, from his justice. Um, and yeah, so just talk to that a, a little bit, brother. You know, when we go out into the community, what is not loving is to say, you know what? Um, God loves you just the way you are because God is love. That That is not loving. But to go and call the world to repentance, which they will hate us for, um, that is actually loving. Yeah, both Jesus and John the Baptist referred to the Pharisees as a brood of vipers, right? Um, he was not afraid of condemning the hypocrites. You see that in Matthew chapter 23, where he repeats the phrase, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, um, at least seven times. And so we, we know that uh, to be loving is not according to the standard that other people would hold. And this is the problem with the second greatest commandment, um, not a problem in terms of what scripture says, but a problem in terms of how it's interpreted. To love your neighbor as yourself. And there's a few ways that that gets twisted. Um, one, there is a, um, a minister that I know of that, and there is probably a number of people that do this, will use this as a command for us to love ourselves. They will say, love your neighbor as yourself, which means that you must love yourself first. Well, no, that's not what that command is about. That command assumes you already do love yourself, but you are to love your neighbor as yourself. But the problem with loving our neighbor is that we disconnected from loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. When you you love God first, you love his truth. You love the reason why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. You love the gospel that brings salvation. And so to love your neighbor as yourself is to recognize the truth that God has revealed to us first and to act according to that love. So when the people of this world and when, and, and especially this is invaded into the church, you know, you had mentioned the examples earlier about the masks that we're being told to wear because of the COVID shutdown and how churches have shut down and whatnot. And we're not, you know, and you use the vaccine as an example, and we're not saying that you can't get a vaccine. We're not saying that uh, you shouldn't wear a mask. But what we're saying is that we're hearing a lot of arguments being made that you should do these things strictly because of the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's stripping it from its context. And yeah. we got to recognize that to love our neighbor as ourselves doesn't mean to appease them, whatever it is they want us to do. Because as you mentioned, Jesus Christ was the perfect example. If he had appeased the world the way they wanted, wanted him to appease the world, he would never have been sent to the cross. And it's like the tweet that I saw from um, Dustin Benj yesterday, where he said the, the world, they love the works of Jesus, they, mm. they love the miracles of Jesus, they loved a lot of things about Jesus, but they hated his words. Yeah. And so we yeah. cannot hate, we, we cannot be a people that loves his works more than his words. We have to be a people that abide by his words. And that's the great commission, right? We, um, Jesus Christ calls us to teach others to observe all all that he has commanded. Jesus Christ said when he was tempted that uh, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus Christ gave the Holy Spirit to his disciples in order that it would help bring to remembrance all that Jesus Christ has taught. We have a New Testament filled with commandments, and they are filled with commandments, not because they are superfluous or unnecessary. They're filled with commandments because that is exactly what Jesus Christ wants us to know, to understand, to, and to apply. 
Yeah, absolutely, brother. And I just think, you know, and Jesus prepared us for these things, right? We're, if we're going to imitate the, the life of Christ, we've got to define love the way he defines love, the way scripture defines love. Um, you know, I just think, you know, we talked about the fact that Jesus being the most loving man ever, right? The crowd hated him. The people killed him. Um, and, you know, later on, the apostles brought that up as, as a point of conversation, right, uh, before the, the Pharisees. And I just say, you know, you can go to John 15, 18, and this is where, you know, Jesus says the world hates, if they hate you, just know that they hated me first, right? So, the, just the idea that we can, quote unquote, love the world enough so that they like us um, is, it's really just a false belief. And, you know, I think you would make the point and had before when we tried to record previously um, that that doesn't mean we should be happy and excited if the world hates us, right? That doesn't mean you're being loving just because the world right. hates you. We can certainly uh, do things that are unchristlike that would give people right reason to dislike us. That's not what we're talking about, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can make the world hate us, and it's not having anything to do with truth. Um, there's a lot of people that share the truth of God in a very unloving way. They're very harsh. They're very condescending. Um, they put down other people. Um, so they they show uh, in their behavior a lack of love for Christ, a lack of love of God, a lack of love for people. You know, when we share the gospel, for instance, our motivation needs to be that we want to see them be saved. Uh, we want them to come to a knowledge of the truth because we love them. And now they may hear the truth and then still call us unloving and call us judgmental and all those kinds of things. But let that be because they rejected the truth, not because mm -hmm. of your behavior. And I think of Mark chapter one, Mark chapter one, um, Jesus had been performing miracles uh, throughout um, all of Judea. So early on in his ministry, we read from Verse 32, when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, why is it that everyone is looking for Jesus Christ? Because they loved the works that he was doing. He healed many who were ill. He was casting out demons. He was doing all these miracles in their sight, and they wanted more of it. They wanted their physical healing. They wanted to, to, to see their lives improved by the miracles of Jesus Christ. So you would think that Jesus response, if his desire was really to give people what they think they needed or what they wanted, would be, well, let's go out there. Let's not, you know, let's make sure that we love our neighbor by doing more of the same. No, he says in verse 38, he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also for that is what I came for. And so the truth of God came through in his preaching, the works that he performed, the miracles and the healing, that was meant to give credibility to his teaching. And so Jesus Christ, when he came, as you said, a perfect example of love, but it doesn't mean he gave the people exactly what they wanted. Loving your neighbor doesn't mean doing to them everything that they think you should be doing. No, mm -hmm. we, we give and we love according to the, what God tells us, not what the world tells us. And that... A perfect example is the gospel. There are many unbelievers. How many of them don't want to hear the gospel? And yet that is the most loving thing that you can do is to share the gospel. 
Yeah. And, it, you know, you brought out some really good points there because I, people could very easily listen to us and think, well, I mean, how can you really tell if something's loving or not? Because it seems like there's still so much um, guesswork in it, right? And, you, and motivation is something that, that you brought up, which is a very good key. Now, here's the challenge. Um, I, I don't know your motivation, right? Um, now, I can look at your life enough. I can see what you do and the ways you do it and come to a reasonable conclusion, uh, not like you can do with Twitter very easily, for instance. Um, but you have to be the judge of that. And so, I think it's you know important that as believers – we're comfortable studying scripture and defining love based on scripture and not being so easily moved by people who would say, oh, well, you're unloving, right? And, and it, because I can consider my motivation easier than you can consider my motivation. And I know um, if I'm calling people to repent, if I'm doing that because I just want to one up on the world, I want to win an argument. Well, then no, that's not loving. Um, but if my motivation really is I want to see sinners come to new life in Christ, then absolutely that's loving. And and so I've got to be um, strong enough in understanding what the word says is love that when someone says, oh, well, that's not very loving, you can't call people to repent. You can't call people uh, say that they're a sinner. Um, I can say, well, no, God defines love. And, you know, I'm doing this because I genuinely want to see people come to Christ. So, motivation is a huge thing. Now, sometimes, you know, we can tell um, when people are doing things by their actions. I mean, often it's hateful rhetoric uh, and they're just throwing in some Christianese. Well, that's that's pretty easy to tell, but sometimes it's not, right? And you, you make another good point. Jesus, I mean, his love was based in obedience to the Father. Um, yeah. You want a good example of this? Earthly speaking currently, James Coates. Um, that is a loving congregation. And, and why do I know that? Uh, I've heard him speak, but beyond that, they're still meeting underground in obedience to Christ, and that's loving. He's loving and shepherding the flock well. Um, that's one uh, way that we can judge love is, is it out of right obedience to God or is it out of something else? Yeah, the fruits of James Coates um, has spoken loud and clear. And when I've listened to him speak, I hear a lot of godly wisdom. I hear it phrased in a way that reflects his love for people and his desire to see Jesus Christ, uh, that the name of Jesus Christ spread. Um, even saw an interview with um, with a young uh, female reporter where the reporter, it wasn't part of the video clip, but the reporter actually thanked him for praying with her. And I was like, you know what, that that's the mark of a godly man. He he didn't do it for attention. Um, he did it as he was um, talking to this young lady, wanted to pray with her and, and help show the love of God in that way. And even on Twitter, and we, we know this on Twitter, just sharing truth, you're going to get a lot of hate that comes your way. And one of uh, my own philosophies, and I try to stick with this as best I can, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not perfect in this, um, but you know, when we're in a debate with someone who disagrees with us, I simply just try to stick to the truth of God. I just try to reflect back the truth. And oftentimes, and you will see this over and over again, that uh, at some point, they're going to respond back with ad hominem attacks. 
Now, not yeah. always, but a lot of times they come back with ad hominem attacks. And we have to examine our own hearts and motives. What was our motivation for sharing that? And um, I would like to be able to say that when I share the truth, that my desire was simply to share the truth. And when I look at those conversations and realize I did not attack their character, I did not read into their motivations. I simply just shared what the truth of God says. And when they do not give me the same benefit of the doubt, well, then I know, you know, I've got nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, my conscience is, is clean before God. So it does require us to examine our own hearts. But um, again, just examine your actions and make sure that you're not resorting to things that unbelievers resort to. And especially in this postmodern day and age when people come across opinions that they, they do not agree with. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think other uh, another thing that people get mixed up all the time is the difference between tone and love. Right. We we assume that if uh, however you say something and we'll talk about this specifically on Twitter and Facebook because it's a different dynamic. But, um, it, you know, we often assume that if someone just says something in a way that seems harsh to you, um, that automatically it's unloving. Well, that's interesting uh, because I can recall a time where Jesus took the time to fashion a whip and he took it to the temple. Exactly. And he undoubtedly used it and overturned tables um i mean you talk about tone and action that's he would not be welcome in a lot of churches today jesus himself um if he were to walk on in in the flesh right now um yeah and yet he was never absent perfect love and that's because he was filled with love and zeal for his father's house and so he actually demonstrated great love in an action that we would deem unloving otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. And there was a recent set of tweets from someone I won't mention, but he said something to the effect of, if your favorite Jesus is the one that turned over tables, then you have lost the plot or something like that. And this is this is kind of the act of deconstructing Jesus into these multiple facets of personality and, and trying to make some uh, be, be less meaningful than others. Uh, but we can't separate that. And in fact, in that case, and you had mentioned it well, when Jesus turned over those tables, um, it was a zeal for God and his house. You know, and that, that house, the, the temple of God, was intended to be a house of prayer. Jesus mentioned that as well. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but they had turned it into a rock robber's den. So that action, which was a very forceful, um, some might even say violent, he took control, um, very manly in, in what he did. That action was not separate from his love. That was actually an expression of his love, a love for God and the fact that he wanted God to be honored as God and that house to be honored for its purpose. And that is a very great um, example of how truth triumphed over the feelings or the desires of the people at that time. Yeah, so for those who have been worshiping the kind of, you know, long, blonde-haired, soft-hand, sissified Jesus, your mind just got blown uh, because that was a perfect demonstration of his love. But it's really true. And that's not the only time Jesus demonstrated love in a way that is just bizarre and foreign to our modern climate. Um, you know, it's interesting. One of the examples that very often get brought up 
is Jesus, when he interacts uh, with the Pharisees, when they're about to stone a young woman caught in adultery. I, I love that story, but there's great irony in using it to say, oh, yeah, see, this is Jesus's love. And what they really mean is you shouldn't call out people's sin. You shouldn't, you know, um, it, it kind of the, the guys who think proselytizing is violence and all that sort of thing. Well, I would just remind folks that he absolutely did uh draw a line in the sand as it were or drew something in the sand we don't know what it was and he stopped them from stoning her but the very last thing he did was to address her sin personally and he did it there and said now look go and sin no more that was like after he said you know who condemns you no one would neither neither do i but go and sin no more so he didn't just leave her comfortable in her sin he addressed it and that's what we're saying real love does right when we're calling the world to repentance this is the very thing we're doing we're saying stop your sin repent um lest something worse happen to you and of course uh that would be ending up in an eternal hell hiding the truth of hell is not love it is exactly the opposite of love you can't say you love your fellow man if you're afraid uh to inform them of the realities of hell um and the provision that christ has made through his propitiation for their salvation yeah the ministry of jesus christ from the very beginning and you see this in matthew chapter 4 i want to say verse 17 is that his ministry began by calling people to repentance it was a ministry of repentance and same with john the baptist it was a ministry of repentance the first very first uh, sermon preached on the day of pentecost after the ascension of jesus christ how does peter conclude his message by calling people to repent and so love uh, means calling people to do what is right um, and in the case that great example example you mentioned of the woman you know those pharisees the leaders that brought the woman to him they really wanted uh, permission to go ahead and stone her well that's not the point everyone has sin that they need to repent of and that's really the whole point of the judge not lest you be judged um, the idea that you need to examine the log that is in your own eye and then once you have removed that then you can address the speck that is in the other person so see your sin as being your first priority addressing your own sin before you go and ad address others it doesn't mean not to address others but yes repentance it's interesting today when we share the gospel so often that is the one word that is left out um, the call to repentance but even paul when he was um, on the Areopagus in uh, in greece and came across the philosophers and all that the epicureans what does he say in acts chapter 17 i think verse 30 he says god is calling everyone everywhere to repent and so it is it is definitely um, part of the love of god to call people to repent meaning turn away from their sins turn towards god but you can't even do that without being able to address what their sins are in the first place yeah i mean this is the fundamental truth of christianity um for a, a christian to to be loving this has to be a central thing that we do our 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 focus right i mean we're told to go and make disciples of all the nations we can't make disciples without first seeing people come to christ you can't do that without calling them to repentance so at the most basic level if the gospel message is absent your life it's whatever else you do 
might be good works. They might be good things, but ultimately they're not the most loving. I mean, as, as it's been said before, by the world's definition, you could love people straight to hell. Uh, you can give them food, you can clothe them. Those are all good, great things. Um, and, and if you leave the gospel out, I mean, have you really loved them? And, you know, so we've got to define love this way rather than the world's way. And, you know, another thing is you read through the scriptures. I mean, the Psalms, Proverbs are filled with lots of good things. I mean, Psalm 33, 5, uh, talking about God says he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of loving kindness of the Lord. Love is never absent. A, a desire for righteousness and justice. And so if you get, I mean, just look at the BLM movement now, that whole movement is absent any love because it embraces um, prejudices. It embraces, you know, the slander of whole segments of people um, and it's totally absent love. So that just because you do something good, humanly speaking, doesn't mean you're actually loving yeah, I had made a point of, of this on Twitter a while back that when we look at, for instance, the Tower of Babel, you know, you had perfect unity amongst the people. They were perfectly united in creating that tower, but they were perfectly united against the will of God. And what does God do? He confuses their languages because they had disobeyed. They had disobeyed the call from God to fill the earth. and Instead, they wanted to be like God. And so, unity by itself is not the call of God. It's unity based upon truth. And to your example of BLM, well, that goes back to what we talked about last week, which was critical race theory. Critical race theory to take on that that worldview means that you're going to read into the motives of people simply based upon their appearance or the color of their skin. And it's to really elevate um, or to really condescend or to be condemning, overly condemning of, of one group of people as being more sinful than the other, which we know is totally unbiblical. We know in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, Paul says that no one is good. No one seeks after God. Everyone has turned aside. Everyone has become useless. Um, no one does what is right. But I think also of the deacon Stephen, when we look at the mm. book of Acts and talk about tone, Stephen's tone when he gave that message to the Jewish leaders could not have been a very friendly tone. And in fact, at the end of that message, what does he say? He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised mm. in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And with that closing to his message, they were angry, said they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand and said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the son of man standing at the right hand. They cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, rushed at him with one impulse. So they were united. They were united against Stephen. Mm -hmm. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And then verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called out on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees. This is the amazing part. Here it is. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Hmm. Do you realize that the only way that the Lord could not hold that sin against them would be to save them? 
And so Stephen, while giving this condemning message to them, by today's standards, it would be the most judgmental, unloving thing that he, he could possibly do. And yet, as he is dying, what is his desire? He wants them to be mm -hmm. saved. And the only way people can be saved is by sharing the truth. And sometimes, and in this case, uh, this is the Jewish leadership who have been hardened. Um, they sent Jesus Christ to die. They had been standing against the apostles, even from the day of Pentecost. And so we realize that sometimes the greatest enemies are those who are actually within the church. Those who say they are for Christ, but they are not really for Christ. Those who are the religious hypocrites. And these are the times where you see Jesus, you see Paul, you see Stephen here. This is when they are the harshest. Jesus uh, clearing out that temple is a gr another great example, but all of it has to be motivated by the same thing, that we want them to be saved. And guess what? That request from Stephen not to hold this in against them, it was mm -hmm. answered first and foremost by a young man by the name of Saul who was right there. Yeah, absolutely, who uh, went on to write most of our New Testament uh, as the Apostle Paul. I, I mean, it's a good point, brother. And, you know, sadly, a lot of those who are what we've deemed tone police are from within the church. Um, and, you know, the book Jude wrote an entire epistle warning us about those who have crept in. Peter uh, talks about how they bring in destructive heresies, um, leading, you know, people astray. And, yeah, and, and we have to be aware of those things. And, and again, you... I, I, you know, in our culture, if you don't follow the narrative, you're instantly unloving. And I think believers can tend to get caught up in that, either that they start promoting it or they start kind of doubting, you know, themselves in terms of what love really is. You know, one thing is uh, that you can be sure of um, preaching the gospel is always a loving thing to do. Uh, we're, we're preaching the gospel for the sake of seeing souls come to Christ. Um, that will always be a loving thing to do. And there will, even now around the world, many um, men and women lose their lives for that. Uh, it, you know, we talked about masks and vaccines. Um, I, I just, I, it's such a great testament of love. I read a couple days ago, and I, I can't remember if it was Facebook or Twitter, um, but there was a guy who does not want to get the vaccine. And that's fine because that's a personal preference, right? If you want to take it, take it. If you don't, don't. That's not the point. Um, but his position is he does not want to take this, but he's opting to take it so that he can go to another country yes. to witness oh to a friend. Uh, friend or family, I can't remember now, but now, now that is that is love. Um, this whole idea of if you just don't wear a mask, you're not loving, or you just don't want a vaccine—that's just nonsense. In fact, it's evil in my opinion because you're implying someone's not loving if they don't do what you want them to do. This is love. Here's a man who does not want to take the vaccine, and yet he's opting to do it so that he can go and witness to a friend in another country. That is a great example of biblical love. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, for someone to be so staunch against the vaccine um, means that he has some real concerns about taking it. Um, whether you agree with it or not, I'm just making the point. He would have some real concerns, health concerns about taking it, but that he's willing to take on that risk, even knowing that it could harm him, just to share the gospel with someone. And, and this goes to the example of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says, to the Jew, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those under the law, 
law as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. And he goes on to say, to the weak, I became weak. And he concludes with this, I've become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. And there's a couple of, and there's a lot of great truths there, but there's a couple that really jump out to me. Um, First of all, a lot of people take this passage to say that we can act like sinners in order to win over sinners. That's not the point of this passage. We have freedom in Christ, and the point of this passage is exactly the opposite of what people often make it to be. We have freedom in Christ, but what Paul is saying here is he's willing to sacrifice certain freedoms in order to help win people over. He has become all things to all men. He's willing to sacrifice even all the freedoms given to him so that he may be able to win over someone to the cause of Christ. But he also says all things to all men so that by all means, save some. Not everyone we share the gospel with is going to respond to the gospel. They're not going to repent. Even the great apostle Paul understood that. But we were simply called to share the truth and even to make sacrifices necessary um, that make it uh, that make it possible for us to share the truth. We saw it also when he went to Philippi the very first time. What happens, he goes to Philippi, he meets uh, that uh, slave girl who's possessed by a demon spirit. He casts mm-hmm. out the demon. What do they do? They they beat him. They throw him into the inner prison. They fasten him with um, with in, in stock and then what happens next? Him and uh, and Barnabas, I think it was Barnabas or Silas. Uh, I think it may have been Silas. Him and Silas. What are they doing? They're they're giving thanksgiving to God. They're singing in psalms, and uh, and, and all for what? Even after the earthquake hits and the, the the jail doors are open, they could easily run out of there for their freedom. But what did they do? They stuck around in order to share the yeah. gospel with that prisoner. And so that was a great example, you know. And Paul, by the way, he could have avoided. All of that. Everything that happened in Philippi, he could have avoided because he was a Roman citizen. Yeah. He waits until the very end to reveal that because they wanted to kick him out of the city and say, leave. And he says, wait a second, I'm a Roman citizen. And that's when they backed off and said, okay, we realize that now Paul has the power in his hands to indict everyone, indict everyone who was involved. But what Paul really showed was that that Roman citizenship that he had was secondary to his desire Mm -hmm. to share the gospel. Boy, if Americans can get that. Um, no it would be a big deal. Yeah. And we, I mean, Paul demonstrates that same kind of loving mentality in being willing to give up, you know, his freedoms. I mean, in, in uh, Corinthians, as at first Corinthians eight or nine, uh, he talks about how if eating meat would cause his brother to sin, he would never right. eat meat again. Right. Yep. I mean, just as an example, I mean, I mean, that's a loving countenance. I mean, that's just you know, Paul saying there are things more important um, than the freedoms that I have. And yeah. And and so, you know, interesting. An- another thing, I mean, you bring up the fact that Paul could have avoided all of those things. I mean, when you read through uh, the account of how many times he has been stoned and whipped and shipwrecked, um, I just think it, it was love that, so the apostle Paul gets stoned nearly to death. Um, you know, he gets drug out of the city and it was love that compelled him to go right back and preach the exact same message that they hated enough to stone him in the first place. Yeah, they, they left him for dead. They stoned him and they left him for dead. And then he got up and went right back into the city. That How do you explain that? And and so you can't define love based on how an angry mob responds, because in that case, they stoned him almost to death. And, yeah. I mean, in fact, he, mu- he had to have 
looked bad enough that they believed he was going to die. And and this isn't like a one-off thing. These people knew very well what being stoned to death looks like. It was a part of the culture. So he basically looked dead. And and yet yeah. it was love that got up and compelled him to go right back and preach the same message that got him into that position in the first place. Yeah, and he expresses that in Romans in the beginning of chapter 9 and chapter 10, how much he loves his fellow brothers, how he would even wish himself to be afflicted like Christ in order to bring them salvation. He had a greater love for his fellow Jews than anyone I could have imagined at that time. And yet, how was he received by fellow Jews? Well, they hated him. They, they followed him everywhere trying to undo the work of the gospel that he did everywhere he went. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him. The whole reason why he ended up being in prison, he appealed to Caesar, but the whole reason why he ended up being in prison and sent all the way to Rome is because he went first to Jerusalem, and the Israelites in Jerusalem were plotting to assassinate him. And it was only by appealing to Caesar that he could be protected from their assassination plots. Yeah. And I mean, just another thought as you're talking about that, we're talking about love and the world's response to it. I often hear Christians, I mean, and, and, and you'll know this right off, another passage that gets twisted on its head is, well, you know, the world should know us for our love. Well, it's mm. interesting because if you go to John thirteen thirty five, which is where yep. that comes from, totally not the passage, right? It says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another another yep exactly not not the world we love Mm -hmm. the world by calling them to repentance but the world should know that we are followers of christ for our love for one another um big difference there speak to that brother yeah and this is where the church really shines um it's that when people are saved they're brought into the church and we show our love for one another within the church that we meet each other's needs a lot of people try to turn christianity into this effort to end poverty around the world first of all that's not practical that that could never happen it will never happen well jesus said you will always have the poor you will always have the poor and not only that but when we look at the examples uh just in the life of paul when we look through the book of acts as well as some of the letters from paul when paul ministered to the poor it was specifically the poor who were believers Mm-hmm. He received collections in order to meet the needs of the um, the poor believers. And so within the body of Christ, um, we want to be one in our love for one another. And that means we meet each other's needs first and foremost. Now, that does not mean that we don't uh, meet the needs of those outside the body. Um, it does not mean that we aren't giving to those outside the body. But there is a priority first and foremost within the body of Christ. So that when people come into the church, they see that we indeed do take care of one another. Now, if we start to try to take care of the world as well and make that part of the mission, I tell you what, you are going to be taken advantage of. There are people, and I've I've seen this, you've probably seen this, I think everyone who's been um, a pastor of a church for any length of time have seen this at, at one point or another, where people only come around the church because they only want the money and the food that you're going to provide, not because they want the truth. Um, had this uh, one lady that would repeatedly come to church um, not for the services she never attended any of the services but she would come at the end of service she would try to talk to people trying to get people to give her money and uh, and then eventually someone led her to me and she said she needs money she gave me all these reasons why she she needs the money and yet she's never bothered to sit in on a single service of ours well the money that we have as much as i would like to be able to help her though the money that the church does have is reserved for our saints who are in need not someone who's unwilling to to come 
come and, and mm-hmm. join us. So yeah, we are characterized by our love for one another within the church. You even see that in First Timothy 5 when Paul talks about how we were to care for widows, mm-hmm. right? It's not yeah. widows across all of society. Right. We even see that in the book of Acts, right? The, the establishment of deacons. The establishment of deacons started off because not all of the widows were being cared for properly. Um, so we see also in First Timothy 5 that Paul says not all the widows in society, not even all the widows within the church, but all the widows who have proven mm. their love for God in the church through their service. Yeah. Those are the ones that you want to meet. The, and not all, not only that, but also those who don't have other family members who are able to support them. So he was actually very discriminating about which widows you were to support. And if we're going to take these verses from scripture to say that we need to meet the needs of all the poor and all the widows, well, you're going to have a problem with the way Paul described our support for widows in First Timothy 5. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is, you know, straight from the text. You're right. I mean, if a widow was unfaithful and not committed to the local body, she would not have fit that category, right? Um, but I, I, we got to get back to this. You know, um, I, I so many scriptures I, I hear people rattle off all the time. are like, okay, the first half of that was great until you got to the last half. And that's not how it went. Um, but yeah, absolutely. The world should know us by our love, but the world should know us because they look at the church and they say, wow, um, they really take care of each other. They might not agree with the message. They may not agree with our view on, um, you know, civil authorities or calling people to repentance. They, they may hate us for all of that, but they should look at the church and say, wow, they're really different in that they take care of their own. Um, yeah, and, and in terms of our love for unbelievers, I've what just came to mind was a quote from, uh, you remember the comedic duo Penn and Teller, um, Penn, that, that tall guy, and he's got that short uh, cohort that, that doesn't speak, and they kind of do these comedy routines. I've never watched them in, in uh, much, but um, there was a quote from him, and he's an atheist. Um, he really mm-hmm. thought about the Christian faith, and though he did not accept the Christian faith, he thought, you know what, if I was a Christian and I believed what Christians believe, then the most loving thing that you can do is to share the truth. Because if you really believe that other people are going to hell, how could you hate them so much not to share the truth with them? And this is from an atheist who's not even a mm-hmm. believer. He's just he's just logically taking things to their conclusion yeah. and recognizing that the most loving thing you can do is to share the truth. So for our fellow believers, we yeah, we do meet their needs. We do seek to encourage them. We do seek to edify them. We are called to do so by scripture. But for those outside the church, the number one thing that they need is the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can give someone food, you can give someone clothes, and they can go to hell for eternity. Um, it's not to say we don't meet those needs as God, you know, gives us the opportunity and what we need to do that, the provision to do that. But first and foremost, love is demonstrated by calling people to repentance um, so that they would hear the truth of the gospel of Christ. And so to try to, you know, love the world primarily through and you, you know this just brings me back to oh what's that senator's name um the on easter sunday uh oh, made the right, most right, horrendous right. Yeah, statements R- Raphael warnock yeah warnock yep. um i goodness you i I'll just to summarize it cuz i don't remember verbatim but basically said you know you don't need the resurrection you don't need christ uh you can do you good can things save and save your yourself yeah yeah you know and and so much of um 
so many within the church, while they've not gone that far, they, they've kind of bought into at least the idea of, well, all we really need to do is just do good works. Um, and, and that's loving. But man, that, that's far from loving. It's something we should do, right? Good works should be nothing more than a demonstration of our regeneration, right? It should flow out of the fact that we're regenerate. We should desire and long to do good works. But that in and of itself is not doesn't define what love is. Um, yeah, Ephesians 2.10 comes to mind. We are created in the workmanship of Christ for good works, for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, I mean, we talked a, a lot about love and we mentioned that the fact that, I mean, really, um, we have to be in Christ ourselves to love. You know, think of 1 John 14 says we, uh, 4, 16, sorry, 1 John 4, 16 says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And so a reasonable next question is, okay, well, but what exactly is love? Well, we've been given that too, right? First Corinthians 13, four through eight. Let, let me just read that. And then we can kind of work through it for the rest of our time together. Because I mean, this is how we ought to define love. And look, it takes a little bit of reasoning, right? To apply it to situations in the world, but it's pretty clear. Um, yeah. First Corinthians 13, four through eight, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. I mean, that abolishes entire movements that we see today. Uh, it goes on to say, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Um, there you have love. And if you just kind of go through those and ask well is, is is that what this is a lot of what we see today falls utterly short uh, and wanting compared to how love's defined here yeah we we've got uh, i think 15 uh, i want to say it's 15 different descriptions of what love is and uh, we have both positive descriptions meaning it tells us what love is as well as negative what love mm -hmm. is not and and this really does not align with the world because the world is about feelings and emotions and there isn't one single aspect of love here that really is about feelings or emotions is there yeah not one i mean if your love is defined by your emotions then your love is defined by fallen flesh yeah. Not by the Spirit the one, of God. The one description that I think maybe could be tied with emotions is that at the end of verse 6 it says rejoices, but it rejoices with what? It rejoices with the truth. Yeah. Um, so our feelings, um, our feelings are to follow the truth, not the other way around. We don't start with our feelings and then construct truth based upon our feelings. We start with the truth of God and then our feelings will follow. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just if you just go, let's go through a couple of those and just kind of talk through them a little bit. I mean, love is patient. Goodness. That that's a big one. That's a that's a big one. And we see even today, for instance, during the um, the announcement of the verdict in the Derek, Derek Chauvin trial, we know that the court and the city had crowds of people that were ready 
And what were they ready to do? Well, there were even interviews right on the street before the verdict came out that they were ready to burn the city to the ground. In fact, some people saying that that would be a good thing to do, to go ahead and just burn the entire city to the ground. And what is that? That's Well, that's first of all, it's impatient. Um, I would argue it's unjust as well. But um, this is the aspect uh, of our lives that most of us, I, th- I would say a lot of us struggle with patience. We want what we want and we want it now. Even when we want righteousness or justice, we want it now. And yet we have to be told that God is our avenger. God is the one who's going to bring perfect justice when the time is right. Well, what is it that we get challenged by unbelievers? If God is good, why does he allow evil? Well, he's only going to allow evil for a certain time before he punishes it. So love is patient. Um, it's, um, it's the idea of God being long-suffering and he was long-suffering with all of us um, all of us who are believers he was long-suffering with our sin um, while waiting for the time for us to respond to the gospel and then to become uh, one of his as well as people who are still unsaved um, we we don't know who the elect are we don't know who the chosen are and we don't know when their timing is going to be when they see and finally respond to the truth it could be on their deathbed but we are to be patient and i think uh, this is very important for us when we preach the gospel don't worry about how many times they've rejected it. You continue to be patient with them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, this list is kind of like for a lot of people. I, I know I often hear uh, ladies when you walk through Proverbs 31 say, man, this, this depresses me a little because it's just a standard I can't meet. So we understand that this is that this is the golden standard here. We're not going to meet this perfectly. But, you know, if, if you just break down a lot of what we see into the world and, and take time to go through these things and actually, you know, just quickly, this trial incident is a great example because it's fresh in everyone's mind. I mean, you already demonstrated that it lacked patience. I mean, these people were already they had already planned. Right. And were ready to destroy a city. Um you know, based on an outcome, um, th- there was nothing kind in that, right? They were right. going to destroy the livelihoods of other people because they didn't get the verdict that they wanted, right? It, it Jealousy, I mean, uh, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, that whole movement is founded on um, basically being jealous of not having what someone else has and trying to make excuse for, you know, getting it yourself. Um, you know, it's boastful, certainly arrogant. I mean, just right there, they've missed the mark on all of those. Does not act unbecomingly. Well, right. I, I don't think any reasonable yeah. person, right, would say that burning a city down is, is becoming. So, um, does not seek its own. Absolutely, they seek their own, right? If you aren't in the narrative, you're aside. They, they are, are tolerant of everyone except those who disagree, um, yeah. right? Not provoked. Well, they were ready to burn the city down, so they failed yeah. that one. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Um, it is That's a movement. Motivation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a movement of perpetual unforgiveness, right? Yeah. It's, it's based on that. Um, you can never repent in that movement. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Well, I mean, again, fail that test, uh, rejoices with truth. They hate the truth, right? And then you go through the other, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Um, I, I mean, there is not one single um, thing in this passage that aligns itself with what we saw. And that's just an isolated incident. Uh, but if you want to define love, 
I mean, this is this is a good practical way to do it. Go through this passage and say, well, is this really patient? Is this really kind? And sometimes, you know, the kindness of God, and I don't think we're called to do this probably, but, you know, there's that time when Jesus made a whip and he whipped people out of the temple. Certainly, um, there are times where we are hard and very upfront with those who uh, are heretics and apostates in the church who are leading the church astray. Yeah. Um, right. We, we got to yeah, be we, careful with that, but there's a place for those things and it's not absent love. Right. And, and we're not, we're not condoning violence in any way, shape or form. We're not, not at all. We're, we're to, to be violent with people. Jesus um, was not uh, afflicting people. He, he was basically driving them out of the temple. And even our example of BLM, we're not saying that they're more, uh, more of sinners than anyone else. Uh, we are all depraved. We are all sinners. I think we're just seeing it more, uh, more bluntly um, with, with uh, many people in that movement who are resorting to violence to get what they want. Um, so we recognize that. And so we, this, this is in the heart of all men. And part of mm-hmm. what happens when God judges societies or even judges people, he'll often hand them over to their own sins. Yeah. And so they start to do worse and worse things. It's not that in their nature, they're any worse, but it's just that God has handed them over. And I think that's what we've seen a lot uh, in our society today, um, this kind of mob type of justice. And look, in terms of the Derek Chauvin um, verdict, uh, I, I was not a juror. I did not see all the evidence. I did not see everything or heard everything that, that they heard. I did not follow the entire trial. So I'm not in a position to be able to say whether it was just or not. Um, but I will say this, and here was my concern. I certainly hope that that jury came to that verdict without the influence of the mob. Um, because if the mob influenced it, then it's no longer justice. It's supposed to be in the hands of of the yeah. jury. But yeah, we, we do see a lot of the biblical defini- definitions of love being violated um, very much in how the world is behaving today. And that whole thing about uh, being jealous and and, uh, and coveting, um, it's essentially the, the, the starting point uh, for the definition of racism is that one group has more than another. Well, that's not where racism is it could be racist yeah but just because one group has more doesn't mean that it is a result of racism you know there's a lot more to it than just that but we tend to be very one-dimensional in kind of our analysis of that Vody bakum does a great job of exposing that um, but yeah we we just we see these examples over and over again we need to come back to scripture and cling to the definitions given to us by scripture not the definitions that the culture wants to take up yeah, absolutely. And and so, I mean, just to kind of bring that together, while we, and, and you said this very well, um, we want to define love the way scripture does. We don't want to fall into the trap of um, believing love is what the world says it is. And we also don't want to fall into the trap of thinking somehow we are better or even hating the world. Um, it, the Black Lives Matter just for instance, because we talked about it a lot, that is our mission field. They are not our enemy. They are not our enemy. They are the mission field. We know they're a mission field because they're against, you know, the the teachings of Scripture. I mean, if you go to the official website, they make it very clear they're against the things of God. They need the gospel. And so, if you really want to love those people, um, don't march in solidarity with them. March and share the gospel with them. Um, maybe don't do that while they're burning cities down. That's not good. Um, yeah. But 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 really, if you want to love them, then 
proclaim the gospel, call them to repentance um, and do it for the sake of their souls. Because like you said, we don't know who God has and hasn't called to himself. So we preach the gospel to everyone, um, everyone who will hear and as many times as they'll hear. And that's got to be, and they'll hate us for it. Many will hate us for it, but many hated Christ for that same thing. And so we can't be deterred from actual love because we're afraid of the world's twisted definition of love. Um, you know, one day, I don't think it's soon, but, you know, we may find ourselves in this country um, having to be something like Stephen, where we have to pray to our end that God would forgive them and not hold it uh, against them. Christ did the same, right? Prayed that uh, their sins would not be held against them. And as you rightly said, the only way that can be true is if they would come to salvation. And they can only do that by means because God uses means. And so we've got to proclaim the gospel, Uh, but we've got to keep a right view of what love is and, and what it is not. We're not here to appease the world Uh, we're here to serve Christ. We're here to bring God glory. That's why we exist, right? To enjoy God and that God would be glorified. And if that stays our focus, obedience and faithfulness to Christ, then we will, um, as we're renewed by scripture, we will function out of loving character, loving heart, because we have the spirit of God in us. Yeah, and that's the difference between love and obedience. Uh, and I'm sorry, not love and obedience, but uh, love and legalism, right? So a lot of people yeah. will say that we're being legalistic for emphasizing obedience. Uh, well, what did Jesus Christ said? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, a lot of people get that twisted, and they think that the emphasis is upon obeying your commandments, obeying the commandments of God. No, the emphasis is first on is on if you love him. Yeah. So in other words, love for Christ results in obedience to his word it's not a obedience to his word produces love for christ Um, so that's to reverse that makes a legalism but to base it upon the love of christ is actually biblical Um, legalism is very man-centered it's wanting to prove that we deserve the love of god whereas true love of god starts with our love of god for what he has done for us and lets obedience uh, flow out of that yeah and i mean another way to say that would be it because we love christ we desire to be obedient we seek after that yeah absolutely um well brother it's been a good conversation and that kind of gives us a segue into our topic for next week uh because you can't you can't keep the law and legalism is a big deal and so we'll just leave that as a cliffhanger uh but that'll sort of be our topic for next week well Thank you guys for joining us. We hope this has been edifying. So go out and indeed love the world, but do it by calling them to repentance. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.